Just having a good time together. Having a great time yeah. telling stories and loving the music that they produced. And the whole art of telling stories through songs is really somewhat of a dying art. You're listening to The Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 103, Transcendent Tunes, Woody and Arlo on the Rails. trains as much as it is about Woody in some ways, isn't it? Well, it's about trains in both cases. The father, Woodrow Guthrie, and we're covering a kind of father-son duo today. Mm. Father being Woodrow, Woody Guthrie, and son being Arlo Guthrie, and a couple of their songs that are kind of like anthems in a way. We're doing Woody Guthrie's... This Land is Your Land. Yep which Pete Seeger also made famous. Among others. Among others. Yeah. Uh, and we're doing Arlo Guthrie's City of New Orleans. Now, he didn't write the song, but he made the song famous. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to talk about those tunes, those performers, the writers of those songs, and kind of why we feel they're important. Mm-hmm. Right? And our story begins in 1912 in Okima, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. July 14th, 1912. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie was the second son of Charles and Nora Bell Guthrie, who, by the way, was named after uh, Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic candidate, who would go on to become president of the United States in 1913. And as uh, Woody later told concert goers, quote, my father was a hard fist fighting Woodrow Wilson Democrat. So Woodrow Wilson was my name. Mm-hmm. Both his parents were musically oriented and taught him a wide range of uh, folk songs, which he also learned to play on his guitar and harmonica. Yeah. His early years were really uh, filled with tragedy and personal loss. He lost his older sister, Clara, one of four other siblings, followed by a fire that burned down his family home. His father was ruined financially, and if that wasn't enough, his mother was also institutionalized, suffering from Huntington's disease. The same disease, which would also eventually end Woody's life. Right. By 1926, when he was 14, Woody and three of his remaining siblings were pretty much left to themselves, and their father went to work in Texas to pay his debts. Over the next few years as a teenager, 
Guthrie lives with various families in Okima and turns to busking in the streets for food or money. So some of his influences come from those hard times in America, Mm -hmm. right? The Depression, 1929, the Dust Bowl in the 30s. And well, he jumped trains a lot like a hobo. Mm -hmm. Working America is suffering terribly. He's witnessing all of this, the abject poverty. He's living that poverty in a way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of his uh, raging against inequality and justice for workers comes out of that comes a bit later because at that time he's just busy surviving. Right. He visits Southern California in these places they called Hoovervilles. Oh, yeah. What's that again? And Hoovervilles were like shanty towns that were almost symbolic of the Depression. Right. They were all over the country on the shores of the Hudson River in New York to the valleys of California because the unemployment rate at the Depression's peak had hit 25%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the common man, many, many skilled people were out of work and they were fruit picking, whatever they could do to survive. And the name Hoover in Hooverville is attributed to President Hoover, who was the president during the Depression. And Hoover, or the policies of his government, were largely blamed for the conditions of the Depression. Okay. A particular Hooverville where the story by John Steinbeck Oh, of Mice and Men. Oh, Grapes of Wrath. Grapes of Wrath. In 1939, that's where Ah. the stories developed. Okay. So you get a sense of the timing here. We're nearing the end of the Depression, but the Depression officially ended in 1939. That's a 10-year-long Depression. That's Mm -hmm. incredible when you Mm -hmm. think about it. A whole decade of people suffering. So he really sang his way across the country, didn't he? Well, 1937, Guthrie lands a job with partner Maxine Lefty Lou. Chrisman as a radio performer of traditional folk music on KFVD in Los Angeles, considered a very liberal station for the times. Yeah. And they soon garner a loyal following from the disenfranchised Okies living in migrant camps across California, originally from Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And his popular sentiments found their way into his songs. And he had a very interesting saying written on his guitar, didn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. This machine kills fascists, which I think is a pretty interesting and provocative and powerful political statement. Right. This wanderlust that he has in yeah. California, yeah. which is he's developing in the last three, four years of the 1930s, and he moves to New York. Yeah. And in New York, he's warmly embraced by leftist artists. Right. right. They really like his uh, particular energy and his focus. So he collaborates with the likes of Alan Lomax and Lead Belly. Oh, Lead Belly, yes. And Pete Did, Seeger, believe it or not, and Will Gear. This is a very young Pete Seeger, very obviously. Very young Pete Seeger, yeah. And he takes up social causes, and he actually helps establish folk music. Okay. As a music genre. Right. So he wrote, what, more than 3,000 songs? Yeah, they range. They say more than 1,000, and some people say as high as 3,000. So safely you can say thousands. Because he wrote everywhere, and he wrote prolifically. Mm. And he would hit strides. He would hit moments where he would just write all the time. And a lot of these writings have never even been discovered, in a sense. They've been on the back of napkins, boxes, Mm. wherever he wrote them. Right. Some people say that someone is going to be very fortunate one day and come into a box in an attic and have all this material laid out somewhere. (laughs) 
Do we have any understanding of how this land is your land kind of happened? There's a very famous song, God Bless America. Oh, yeah. With Kate Smith. God Bless America. Right. right. Which is taking place in the late 30s, 38, 39. And he takes exception to this song. He doesn't believe that it's a true reflection of what he's experienced in traveling across the country. Right. It's not really depicting the true picture and the average guy. At the base of everything he does, he's about the average guy. Yeah. If you look at his roots and the hardship he was born out of, you can kind of understand this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and his music does the same thing. His music, his lyrics depict the same thing. And one thing that a lot of people may or may not know about Woody Guthrie was that he often would change his lyrics in a performance, depending on who he was singing to. Okay. Clever. He would kind of tailor it to the audience yeah. or the specific cause that he was kind of trying to right. get to support in his music. Yeah. And musicians kind of did this as well, yeah. uh, that later took on a song. As you mentioned, Bob Dylan, there's people like Bruce Springsteen, Pete Seeger, so many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he influenced Dylan a, a ton. A lot. In fact, in his final uh, years, Dylan used to visit him regularly and in, in the hospital because Dylan got a start in his early 60s and uh, Woody ended up dying in 1967. I think you told me before too that from, from about the age of 55 until his death, he deteriorated so much that he was really not able to do much in the way of performance. He actually died at the age of 55. Oh, he died at 55. But you're saying that in the last 10 years of his life, he was really not in Records indicate that by the late 40s on, so if you know that he's born in 1912, he's not yet 40. Yeah. When this Hodgkin's Korea mm. begins to infiltrate his body. Yeah. And his mother died of that as well. Uh-huh. So this anthem, This Land is Your Land, which is one of the most sing-songy and sing-alongy tunes ever written, when was that actually written? Originally written in 1940. 1940. That far back. That far back, yeah. Wow. And then it was recorded by the famous Ash at Folkway Records. Yeah, Mr. Ash? Yeah, Mr. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> His first name was Flickyer. Yeah. Flickyer Ash. <laughs> Moses Ash. Moses Ash. Moses okay. Ash. Okay. He records it in 1944, but does not release it. Oh, why? I don't know what the reasons were, but it doesn't actually get released for many years. Oh. Apparently, he actually releases Folkway Records, releases it in 1951. Okay. And the actual recorded version, as it says, quote from an article I read, in fact, Guthrie's recorded version was more or less lost until Smithsonian archivist Jeff Place heard the acetate master during a 1997 transfer of the recording to a digital format. Hmm. Still, it was sung at rallies, around campfires, and in progressive schools. It was these populist lyrics that had appealed to the political left in America. Yeah. And the first I ever heard was Pete Seeger's version of it. I'm not old enough to remember Woody in that sense. Right. And it was very stirring, very much an anthem for the common people mm -hmm. and also for America. This land is your land from west to east. Right. Really sweeping, a sweeping song that takes us across the country. Mm -hmm. And then the train travel across the nation too and the importance of trains in the early days of America in particular. Mm -hmm. Without train travel, 
could not have become the industrial nation it exactly. was. Well, connected right? east and west. Yeah. It was a transcontinental railway in the 1860s. And who built that railway? Hardworking Chinese. A lot of Chinese, yeah. You know, and locals, but hardworking people. That's right. Many of whom died. Laborers. In, laborers who yeah. died in the creation. And so Woody Guthrie, as I understand it, wrote also a ton of train songs. Mm -hmm. This train is bound for glory. And uh, Train 45, and different songs all about train travel and, yeah, on and life, on on the, life of the hobo, jumping trains. Ah, but there's an interesting thing. You just mentioned hobo. Yeah. Now, this is the perception that we typically have or that a lot of people have of Woody Guthrie, that he was a hobo, mm -hmm. you know, riding the rails as a hobo. He was actually considered an intellectual. Interestingly, we don't know that about him. No, but he was a, an avid reader. Well, all that aside, think about it. To write as much as he wrote. He'd have to have mm. some intellectual capacity as well, yeah. just to cover the subject matter. Even if the lyrics were simplified, mm -hmm. the content or the meaning behind the lyrics was much more profound. Right. In fact, I read somewhere that he was debating the Federalist Papers in the Library of Congress. Uh -huh. The famous Federalist Papers associated with Lincoln and so on. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't just some poor guy eating potatoes and riding the rails and playing a guitar. Well, that's the thing about these so-called folk singers. We often paint them as mm. being very simple-minded and folks mm -hmm. in one way, shape, or form. And they're much more complicated and more intelligent than we give them credit for a lot of the time. Right? And also more tuned in. Yeah, sure. To the realities of their experience because right. they are experiencing these things themselves. It's mm -hmm. not just what they're witnessing. They're actually living it. Yeah. This is a guy that comes from the center of the United States. Right. And as the song reflects in the lyrics from California to New York and everything in between. Right. He's also brought into, there's this great piece on the Columbia River, which was a documentary that was being made at the time. And his song was made for that. Roll on, Columbia, roll That's on. Right. That's the tune, right? That's the tune. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of these tunes we remember from Woody without actually thinking about them that often, but he really was influential in, as you say, in starting the folk movement. Mm -hmm. And as a songwriter, writing about the day-to-day, -day, what you see out there, right. not some imaginary world mm -hmm. of romance and love and blah blotty, but the actual day-to-day -day struggles. So remember that all of this activity, all this travel, he's quite a restless soul. He doesn't stay in any place for any given length of time. He has this psychological mindset that he doesn't want to get too comfortable anywhere right? because his early life meant a constant move and mm. never knowing what was going to happen next. So he was most comfortable on the road, which is not typically what most people are comfortable with. Right. And this eventually cost him three marriages. Ah, okay. And eight children he had by three different women. Eight children. Yeah. So his son Arlo was, was his second wife. His second wife. Who, by the way, was the only one who attended him in his final days. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. His so, third wife uh, couldn't handle everything that was happening at the end, but his second wife actually came back with the children they had together as oh, well. Okay. And Arlo was one of them. Box, box. This land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest. 
Gulfstream waters This land was made for you and me Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors and twenty-four sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey The train pulled out at Kentucky And rolled along past houses, farms, and fields and Passing towns that have no name And freight yards full of old black men And the graveyards of rusted automobiles Singing good morning America, how are you? Don't you know me, I'm your native son I'm just the train they call the city of New Orleans I'll be gone 500 miles when day is done Fox, Fox Arlo kind of became a chip off the old block in many ways Kind of taking that torch and carrying it forward as a fine singer-songwriter, folk musician mm-hmm. in his own way, making his way in the recording industry, et cetera, et cetera. And speaking of hobos, in 1972, he produced a record called Hobo's Lullaby. And on that album was a song called City of New Orleans, which became his biggest hit. It rose to number 18 on the charts. Also a kind of anthem for trains, Mm-hmm. And many people don't realize that he didn't write that song. They don't know the person who wrote that song was Steve Goodman. A great musician in his own oh, right. A fantastic musician. Yeah. If you dial up YouTube and Steve Goodman, you'll see just how incredible a guitarist he was, as well as a tremendous songwriter. And he grew up in Chicago, and he'd take the train regularly from Chicago down to the south of the U.S. and other parts on the Central Illinois Line, mm-hmm. which was an Amtrak train. And on one of the trips, his wife was asleep, and he started to gaze out the window, and on a big sketch pad, he started to write notes about what he was seeing in the passing fields, a junkyard with rusting automobiles, freight yards full of black men, passing no-name towns, and all that stuff, and playing cards with the old men in the club car, and all of these things that ended up in this song, City of New Orleans. It's really an observational song. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastic song. It's kind of simple in its chord structure, not that complicated. The words are very clear. It's taking you on a journey on this train going mm-hmm. north south in America to the Mississippi area from Illinois mm-hmm. and all the things along the way. And then towards the end, it says, and all the towns and people seem to fade into a bad dream, and the steel rails still ain't heard the news, meaning that Mm -hmm. trains are beginning to go the way of the dodo because airplanes have now come in and they're closing down a lot of railways, a lot of rail lines. And the highway structures in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, which is very difficult for a lot of people in rural areas who relied on the train system and the efficiency of that. Mm -hmm. And so Steve Goodman wrote this song, City of New Orleans, in part to support the movement to save the trains, if you like. Mm -hmm. And he unleashed it in 1970 at the Philly Folk Festival and then recorded it on his first album in 1971. 
And then how did Arlo Guthrie get a hold of this song? This is the interesting story. Okay. We have a segment on YouTube that we can play that where Arlo talks about this. I met Steve Goodman back around 1971, and I was playing in a club at the time on Belmont called Quiet Night. And one night after the show, I was walking out with my guitars, you know, going home or to the hotel or something. And, and the owner of the place, a guy named Richard Harding, stopped me and said, Arlo, before you go, a friend of mine wants to sing you a song. So I said, oh, come on, man. I don't want to hear no songs. I don't like songs. I, don't even, I was tired. I said, I don't, want to, I don't even like my songs. Why should I listen to other people's songs? So around the corner comes this little guy, and he's smiling at me. He says, Arlo, I just want to sing you one song, man. So I says, okay, I'll tell you what, man. You buy me a beer, and I'll sit here and drink it. And as long as it lasts, you can do whatever you want. So he says, this sounds like a good deal. And I says, it does. And it turned out to be one of the finer beers of my life. I met Steve Goodman that night, and we sat down, and he played a bunch of songs and uh, gave me a tape of some of his stuff and some lead sheets, and I took them home. And uh, within about six months or so, we had recorded City of New Orleans and went on from there. And so he records it and produces it on his Hobo's Lullaby album in 1972 and makes it big. Mm -hmm. Steve Goodman, the writer, wrote that song when he had been diagnosed with leukemia. So from- Very young too. Yeah. From 1967 or eight until 1984, when Goodman died at the age of 36, he had to deal with chemotherapy and drugs and all kinds of shit and keep his energy positive and his creativity going to write these songs. And he ends up writing this song, which is a kind of a celebration that is a kind of an anthem as well. Mm -hmm. just want to go back a little bit to Woody Guthrie because one of the interesting things about Woody Guthrie is most people who knew him, who watched him perform, what they were impressed by was not his musical ability because many would say he's not the greatest guitar player. He's not even the greatest singer. Fairly rudimentary guitar. Yeah. But he could tell stories. Mm. And oftentimes when he would sing, he would stop and he would tell stories while he's singing. Yeah. Or while he was singing. And this is really what captured people. This is really what Woody Guthrie is still known for. Yeah. And like father, like son, Arlo Guthrie became famous for a recording called Alice's Restaurant Restaurant Massacre. And it's this rambling, I think it's like 15 or 20 minutes, song story, Mm. which is very, very funny. And just brilliant in its humor. Again, storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, folk music was all about storytelling anyway. Old man, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like young. you. Yeah, mm-hmm. story about that relationship. Father and son, Cat Stevens. Mm-hmm. Relationships, living life. And so, unfortunately, Steve Goodman passes away. But before he passes, Willie Nelson finds his tune And he wants to record that tune. And Willie Nelson records the tune and names the album City of New Orleans in Mm -hmm. honor of Steve Goodman, who I think he knew was dying. And he makes it really famous. Comes number one on the country charts for a long time. So he brings it back in a way, 10 years later, at least. Johnny Cash records it. uh, John Denver records Mm -hmm. it. Sammy Smith records it. All kinds of people. Dylan played it as well. 
And then in 1985, I think it is, Willie Nelson wins a Grammy Award for that song. That song, yeah. And posthumously, Steve Goodman is awarded a Grammy as the songwriter. So he didn't live to see that final accolade, unfortunately. And I'm sure that some, if not all, people that are listening to this podcast will probably be surprised to even hear his name. Because I have to be honest with you, until we talked about this, yeah, I really was not familiar with Steve Goodman. Yeah, I mean, I was generally familiar, but not much more than that. I didn't know that he wrote City of New Orleans. I mean, his tunes are not recognizable. If you listed him, they're not really mm -hmm. that recognizable, frankly. And he never achieved the fame that Guthrie and other folk artists received in those days, which is a bit of a shame. Although he was considered a musician's musician, his fellow musicians really recognized how great he was as a guitar player, as a singer-songwriter. And mm -hmm. there's a fantastic concert with um, Arlo Guthrie, Steve Goodman, and Hoyt Axton together on the stage in 1974. It's on YouTube. Look saw, it up. I saw that. What an incredibly fabulous concert. The music is so good, so strong. The musicianship is really there. And humor, storytelling. Yeah, you can you tell know? by watching the video that they're just having a good time together. Having a great time yeah. telling stories and loving the music that they produced. And, and the whole art of telling stories through songs is really somewhat of a dying art. We don't see that much anymore mm -hmm. from pop bands and other musicians. They're not telling stories so much, which is a shame. Well, a lot of that's also the advent of technology, which has also changed not only the music content, but the technical aspects, the instruments. We're talking about guys with basic acoustic guitars here. Yep. Minimalist in terms of the accruements. Mm. Uh, that they were utilizing in their songs. That's right. Yeah. But then the development of technology and remastering old inconsistent tapes mm -hmm. and stuff mm -hmm. where you can now hear Robert Johnson almost crystal clear. Right. Uh, Woody Guthrie. You still hear, hear the hiss and stuff, but that's part of the charm, right? Uh, so there's a lot of wonderful things about this kind of music. And that's, I think that's why we wanted to highlight it is that it's a kind of a dying breed like trains. This idea of storytelling and observational lyrics. Connecting are, to real people. Yeah, it's a kind of a dying breed when we're living in the age of, mm -hmm. of the internet and digital and you know holograms and uh, pseudo everything virtual everything, mm -hmm. these on the ground kinds of stories of trains where you could feel the rumble beneath your feet. You can actually feel grounded, mm -hmm. but you don't feel on an airplane particularly. Even uh, the noises. Yeah, the noises. On the tracks, clickety-clack. Oh, it's you wonderful. Know. You know, as a baby, you could fall asleep to those noises, etc. Incidentally, this tune, Steve Goodman's version of it, was a tune that they used to wake up the Apollo astronauts on some of their missions. Missions. That tune was, you know, Good Morning America, was used to wake them up. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, also Good Morning America was a television show named after that song. And then they're surmising that the phrase Good Morning America came from a poem and book by the same name by Carl Sandburg, a famous American poet. Arlo also talks about the studio sessions and we should play some of that because that's interesting too what they tried to do with it we tried to do all kinds of things to it in the studio we uh we tried it upbeat we tried it this way we tried it slow we tried it sideways we tried it bluegrass we tried it you know we, we actually re recorded it from scratch seven times 
I mean, I don't mean just trying to fix an old way. Actually, just worked it, worked it, threw it out. Worked it, worked it, threw it out. And on the seventh time, we ended up with just this very simple, plaintive, little piano, little guitar, little squeeze box. And we had some wonderful singers, the Blackberries and a group of guys that could really sing. And we, between the simple tune and the, uh, the instrumentation and the vocals, it just became an anthem, you know, in and of itself. During those sessions, he was backed up by Clyde e. King and Vanetta Fields, two fantabulous backup singers, which Steve Goodman didn't have. He was just solo. And a lot of the remakes are solo, but Arlo brought that fuller sound in with those backup singers. Right. Were there any songs that Arlo and his dad did together? I searched for, I searched for, I couldn't find a one. So I doubt it very much. Nothing recorded as far as I can tell. They probably maybe played at home when he was a kid, mm-hmm. a little child maybe, mm-hmm. but no, not really. In Arlo's time, when this came out, 71, 72, who was the president at the time? Nixon. Tricky Dicky. The Watergate affair, close to the end of Vietnam, but Vietnam is still happening. Mm-hmm. So protest songs. Woody Guthrie is the ultimate protest yes. folk musician in those days. And that paved the way for all kinds of other musicians. And so father and son were essentially doing the same things in two different eras. Yeah. I think Arlo's a bit of a softer approach, but uh, definitely they're uh, cut from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. Well, softer approach kind of matches the conditions in the times, too. He lived in a depressed era. That's right. Arlo did not. That's right. He was in yes. a revolutionary era. Yeah. We just come out of the 60s, early 70s. Right. But the base of both. Their music Mm -hmm. is to bring people's awareness up. Right. By the way, do we know whether Woody Guthrie enlisted in the Second World War? He was. He was actually a merchant marine. Oh, he was? Mm -hmm. In fact, when he came back, that's when his second marriage happened, and he settled in New Jersey for a while, and that's where Arlo Arlo was born. Arlo was born. Okay, so that's how that worked. Mm -hmm. All right. And an important point about Guthrie's music, as I'd mentioned earlier, that he often would change some of his lyrics yes, uh, depending right. on where he was singing, who he was addressing, and so on. Mm-hmm. And his son, Arlo Guthrie and Pete Seeger, both made a point of singing the more radical versions of his songs. Oh, did they? For example, This Land is Your Land. Yeah. Also reviving another verse from Guthrie that he wrote but never officially recorded. Oh, do you have that verse? I do. And the verse was scribbled on a sheet of loose leaf paper now in the possession of his daughter, Mm -hmm. Nora Guthrie. And it said, one bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple, by the relief office, I saw my people as they stood hungry. I stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. Powerful lyrics. And Nora has no idea why. Uh, that verse was never used in the recording. Hmm. So uh, this cast is your cast, this cast is my cast, and we are actually in the town of Orangeville, not the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But we are rambling on on our own journey here on yes, the Silver Podcast. And then we'd love to hear from you. And you know, we're getting people from a lot of different places that are now listening to this podcast. Yes. And there's one place in our own country that uh, repeatedly comes up. Yes. What's that place called? And it's called Beauharnois. Beauharnois, Quebec. It's a beautiful sounding name. 
who's out there in Beauharnois? And are you listening? If you and are, I, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Sincerely. We Send really us a note. Do. En français, if you wish. Mm-hmm, we'd be mm-hmm. happy to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And anyone else listening, we'd love some feedback. Mm-hmm. And if you go to thesillpodcast.com, we've got contact information and all that. But we've also got a very easy to use button that you can simply click and record your message or your comments. It will not steal your identity. We guarantee it. Right. All right. Till next time. Ciao. It's been a slice. Ciao. So it must be that side was made for you and me. The Sill Podcast. Perspectives on art and technology is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.